The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, good morning, brothers and sisters and friends and guests. Welcome to this Lord's Day gathering of Foundation Church. As always, we are glad you're here. Uh, If you have been with us for any time, hopefully you'll recall that uh, in the summer we traversed through sections of the Old Testament, preaching an overview of each book of the Bible in turn uh, to help increase our familiarity with the the parts of the Bible that perhaps we see less often um, and to understand how everything fits together into one big story and one big picture. So right now, this summer, we're working through what is called the wisdom literature. That would be Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. Uh, right now, we, having just done Psalms, we're going to begin into Proverbs. Uh, so something that I like to repeat as uh, we're dealing with this series, talking about kind of how to read the Bible, is that the Bible is a work of literature. And so we should treat it like other works of literature. That means that we should respect who wrote it and who it was written to originally. We should consider the genre of the whole work and also the individual part that we're dealing with. Just in the same way as you wouldn't read a book of poetry in the same way that you would read the instruction manual to your microwave, we need to treat the Bible on the, on the terms that it, it reveals itself to us. Uh, so Psalms is, for example, a collection of songs and poetry, and so we should read it as such. Much of the Old Testament, the books that we've covered so far in past summers, have been historical in nature. In the New Testament, uh, many of those letters are just direct instructions. Do this. Follow these instructions. Uh, Proverbs is something of a trickier case for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first reason is that it is a collection of other works. So as the Bible is a collection of books, Proverbs is actually also itself a collection of books. So there's a few different genres present. uh, And it isn't really a type of writing that we are familiar with today. So you can go and you can read an historical account at the library, um, but you can't really find something like Proverbs uh, on a typical bookshelf today. So it's tempting to compare it to our modern self-help genre, Uh, But I would say that, especially the first half, really the whole thing, is more of a work of philosophy. Uh, But for these reasons, it can be difficult to define kind of a main point of Proverbs, which means that it can be difficult then to give an overview as well. But Proverbs is also one of those books that's helpful to return to frequently. It's broken up into small pieces. Uh, The chunks are memorable, they're punchy, and it's valuable even if you only read a little bit. And I find that every time I revisit it, I notice new things or remember different parts of it that stick in my mind. So my goal today is to give you a little bit of structure to work with for the book of Proverbs as you read it, a few kind of main ideas or common topics or themes to keep in mind, and then also to explain how Proverbs fits into the bigger picture of the Bible. The nice thing about Proverbs is that I have to do almost no work to explain how it's applicable to your life because you really just, you read the proverb and then you do it in your life. (laughs) It's really straightforward in that regard. So we don't even need to spend much time on that. So let's get into the text. The opening line of Proverbs, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of reading from Proverbs 1 and then just jump all over the place. So you don't necessarily need to try to, to keep up. The first line of Proverbs is, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So it's debated as to whether or not this line is meant to apply to the entire work or just to the the first section, which is chapters 1 through 9. There are four similar headings throughout the book. Uh, The first two are Proverbs ascribed to Solomon, and then the other two headings are to other uh, men, other names that we, we don't actually know historically. They aren't referenced elsewhere, but presumably they are known to the original audience. You would read and say, ah, yes, Lemuel. We're all familiar with wise King Lemuel, for example. Uh, But we don't know who they are. Either way, um, someone collected these works together. So it may have been Solomon, although uh, some of the Proverbs are listed as being Proverbs of Solomon, but collected by someone else uh, who actually came, we know, historically later. So at some point, someone other than Solomon had to at least give a final edit to the work. But either way, the general format of the text in each of these sections is uh, similar in some ways, but different. But they all still share a lot of common themes 
and some literary similarities both to each other and to other texts at the time. So other cultures also had wisdom literature where they would share kind of a similar format, maybe from a father to a son or advice to a new ruler. Here's how you do this. Here's what it means to be a good person. But with Proverbs in particular, uh, we have the, the benefit of knowing that it was written by God and not by man. And so uh, the, the advice is of a higher caliber than maybe other comparable literature. So as I mentioned, one thing that you'll notice uh, almost immediately in Proverbs in this first section, chapters 1 through 9, is sort of an introduction explaining about how important wisdom is. Proverbs is a, kind of the quintessential example of wisdom literature because it literally says right at the beginning, hey, this is, this is how you get wisdom. This is how you be wise. So the whole book is framed as kind of a letter or an address from a father to a son. So you can sort of hear this as paternal wisdom, all of the teaching and discipline and advice that, that your dad might give you collected into one convenient book for you to reference when he's not around. Except in this case, your dad is God, and so he's always right. <laughs> so this first section, this, this kind of philosophical introduction, is urging the son, son, be wise and get wisdom. Wisdom is valuable. It will help you in all of your areas of life, and this is how you get it. The next section, the longest section, is chapters 10 through 29, and these are the, the many sayings of Solomon, although some of them are also ascribed to just be generally sayings of the wise. And so we can maybe imagine that some of these are just witty sayings and aphorisms that maybe the people of the day would have been familiar with in general, and Solomon simply collected them. Many of them are also Solomon's original writings. There's 300 and some in the book of Proverbs, depending on how you count. But in Kings, uh, Solomon is said to have written and published over 3,000 wise sayings. So this is a small percentage of what he, he ultimately produced. Uh, the middle section that I've, I've been discussing is, is what we would typically call Proverbs. They're just like one or two sentences, sort of the punchy, clever sayings. They're memorable. They're just advice on a particular topic. Uh, and many of these sayings actually have sort of made their way into like the, the popular, just common English language. You know, pride goes before a fall or as a dog returns to its vomit. Some of our idioms, a lot of our idioms actually come from Proverbs. As you read, you can, you can pick them up and see. If you read it in the King James Version, you'll find a lot more because the King James Version used to be the only version. And so everyone read the same translation of the Bible. And so those idioms and those particular turns of phrase are the ones that really got their way into our our, our common language. And then we go to our final two sections, which are chapters 30 and 31, respectively. These are advice from someone called Agur and someone called Lemuel. Uh, both of those, like I said, are unknown to us. And these last two chapters consist of longer form descriptions of wisdom. So the words of Agur are uh, several sentences each, maybe like four to five sentences on a particular topic, and there's a series of those. And then the words of Lemuel uh, is just one long piece of advice about how to be a good king and how to find a good wife, which, as a king, is very important. So let's go back to what I said earlier about Proverbs. I said it, it's hard to nail down a point, and hopefully you can see why already. We've got a lot of different kind of types of writing and many different authors, and when you go and read the, the actual Proverbs proper, they're just scattered all over the place. A lot of different topics, different advice about work and your parents and your friends and all kinds of things. An uncareful reader could easily come to Proverbs and just treat it like a collection of sort of random, sometimes contradictory bits of life advice. You can pick and choose which ones you like. You can say, oh, this one speaks to me, this one doesn't. I'll apply this one here, I'll apply that one there. And I might as well collect from other sources too, right? So you'll grab some from Proverbs and some from whatever modern self-help book and you know, some from the ancient Greek philosophers and whatever you like. I would like to propose, though, a more sophisticated design for the book of Proverbs. Uh, this purpose is hinted at even by the name of the book. The Hebrew word that is used to title this book uh, isn't really Proverbs. It's actually a verb meaning to be like. So the, the title of this book might be act this way or even compare your life to this. And then when we go to the actual text, that first nine chapter introduction is really the, the driving force behind our interpretation of kind of the, the main point of Proverbs. I'm going to read the first few verses. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. 
Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So we have a clear purpose statement for these collected works. The author Solomon is saying, I'm writing this down to provide instructions to you, my son, on how to live well. Read them carefully because it isn't always obvious. And he goes on to describe wisdom, even here in these verses and then continuing through the introduction. And the description he gives of wisdom is very broad. In our common language, we think of wisdom as maybe being like the other side of the coin of knowledge. Knowledge is knowing something, and wisdom is knowing when to apply it, for example. Or knowledge is having a fact, and wisdom is fitting that fact into the world. But this version of wisdom that's described by Solomon, it does include education. He references instruction and insight in these verses, but also morality, righteousness, and justice. Not only knowledge, but discretion. So these proverbs are meant to be much more than just, you know, hey, kid, here's what you need to do in life. you got to get a good job, stay in school, don't do drugs. There's some just flat, straightforward advice like that. But what we're really dealing with here is Solomon's proposal to the question, what is a good life? And that can be a complicated question, depending on how you ask it. Do you mean, what is the good life, you know, lounging on the beach, not a care in the world, or what does it mean to be good in your life, to live a successful life? What does it mean to live a complete life? What is a good life? And so contained within this work then, we hope to find, sure, advice. We need to know how to make money and find good friends and handle difficult situations. All of these are are parts of living a good life, but we also are looking for what it means to be a good person. Can you live a good life if you're secretly wicked and only appear to be good? How to be respected by others? How to raise your family? How to manage your emotions? How to give and receive love and respect from those you care about? And so being that this question, how to live a good life, is very broad and very important and by definition relevant to everyone that's ever lived, you then won't be surprised to find that many others have attempted to answer the same question, just as Solomon sets out to do here. Uh, There's a work that we have that's much older than the book of Proverbs, somewhere around 3000 BC. The father of the Egyptian king, Mary Kare, writes a manual of wisdom. And it sounds kind of like some of the stuff that's in Proverbs. Obey your forefathers, for work is carried out through knowledge. See their words endure in their writing. Open them that you may read and copy their knowledge. Even the expert must be instructed. It's not bad advice. Countless Greek philosophers proposed competing theories of what it means to live a good life. Plato and Aristotle both said that the answer is some combination of knowledge and virtue. Plato maybe more on the knowledge side and Aristotle more on the virtue side. Many great kings and warriors throughout the centuries have written songs and poems and and works of literature about what it means to live a good life. Oftentimes, the answer is being brave and killing your enemies. Loyalty to family and clan are also common patterns. There's a whole genre of historical literature that starts in antiquity all the way up through the early modern period called Mirrors for Princes. These would be works written usually by fathers, sometimes by mothers or other advisors, to young and upcoming rulers, instructing them on how to be a good person, but also how to be a good ruler how to live and how to rule and who to marry. And you see a lot of similarities, again, in Proverbs. Uh, Machiavelli is actually writing like a satire of this genre in his work, The Prince, because he basically says, here's the trick to live a good life. Don't, just win. Adam Smith, the economist and author of The Wealth of Nations, he also wrote some philosophy, and he says, man desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. So he proposes that a good life means we have the respect of those around us, but we also deserve it. We're actually worthy of that respect, not being hypocritical or hiding things from those we care about. And maybe the modern answer to this question might be found in uh, what's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. I'm sure you've seen it. It's like a pyramid, and at the bottom of the pyramid are your most basic needs leading up to the more complex needs. So first, you have to get things like food and shelter. It's hard to live a good life if you're starving to death. And then once you have a full belly, now the next tier is security. So food for tomorrow, a place to live, clothing, property. 
further up the pyramid once we attain those things. Uh, Maslow says, then we start to get into to more emotional and mental needs. Next, we want love and belonging, followed by respect and status. And then lastly, at the top of the pyramid, for those who are fortunate enough to attain all of these lower needs, we have the opportunity to strive for what he calls self-actualization, which is a complex topic, but I can sum it up by saying, to be all you can be. And unsurprisingly, all of these many varied works spanning the millennia of human writing have a lot of different ideas about what it means to live a good life. It's a blast for me. I, I think it's incredibly fun to just see the differences and similarities in the different periods of history, to see there are some things that appear to be inherent to human nature and other things that seem to be totally cultural. It seems like betraying your friends and family is pretty much always wrong for everyone. But war and killing your enemies is something that we turn our noses up today and universally, at least in this room and in this culture, agree is a bad thing. And yet there are beautiful poems comparing a bloody battle to a, a spring morning filled with flowers and the songs of birds, bringing joy to the hearts of a man bearing a sword against his enemy. So some things are the same. Some things change. But all of these works, all of these proposals to the question, what is a good life, generally have a common form. A good life consists of being good and doing good. So a truly good person, both internally and externally, is virtuous. Those virtues may be defined differently, but you're living up to a standard. And the book of Proverbs is no exception to this pattern. However, Proverbs has one distinct feature that makes it much more valuable for the man who truly desires to find wisdom about how to live the good life. Proverbs was inspired by God. And so the answers found within are certain to be true. And in addition to simple truths, we also know that Proverbs fits into the Bible as a whole. God wrote the whole Bible, all of its different parts and pieces, and they come together for His purpose. And so that means that Proverbs, too, has a place in God's redemptive story. So after we analyze some of the content of Proverbs, we'll also take some time to see how it fits in with the rest of Scripture. So, how do you live a good life? Let's return back to those opening lines of Proverbs. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So this fundamental foundation, even lower than the need for food and shelter, the foundation of a good life and of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And you'll find as you read the rest of Proverbs that the the fear of the Lord includes many things. It includes obeying His commandments and receiving His instruction. It includes a love for His word and His communication to us. It includes a care for others, as all of us belong to Him and are made in His image. But fundamentally, the fear of the Lord is a respect for His design for the world. See, God did not make the universe as an experiment and cast it aside. He did not spin everything into motion and then wander off to go do something more interesting. He has said that this creation that we are in, and in particular mankind, are the, the prized possession of all his creation. And a, a master craftsman does not make something without purpose. So God has made the whole world, the universe and every part of our lives, with intent. So you can imagine Proverbs to be like maybe the rules to a board game. You can look at the board and the pieces and make some educated guesses about what's supposed to go on, but reading the instructions shows you what the designer wants you to do. And likewise, reading Proverbs, which is God's instructions for how to live a good life, tells us what we're supposed to do with this world that we've been placed in. In chapter 8, Wisdom is personified. She takes a voice and says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. There I find knowledge and discretion. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. 
ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs of water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. There I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So some even argue here that this wisdom figure is actually Christ, uh, kind of personified. I don't think that we can go that far based on the way that wisdom is described as being brought forth, but there is strong symbolism and connection here. It calls forth an idea of Jesus being present with God and being a participant in creation. But, but God's wisdom, we see here, is vital to his creative act. I mean, like I said, Everything he made is made with, with intent and with purpose. And wisdom is the embodiment of that creative philosophy. Wisdom is the principle by which God has made everything fit together. And so if God's creation is intertwined with his wisdom from the very beginning, then this book of wisdom surely tells us a lot about what God had in mind when he created. And I might even go so far as to say that Proverbs shows us what are the basic building blocks of a life lived by God's design. So we're going to take some time now and look through the Proverbs for commonalities and repetition. Like I said, the, the Proverbs themselves are not really in any order. Many orders have been uh, proposed. Some of them are a lot more crazy than others, including things like adding up the number of letters in certain words. And It seems like there's no order. And yet there are a lot of repeated themes and topics that we can run into. And we find that those repeated themes are just sort of all the different areas of life that we, we commonly have to deal with, like our family and our relationships and our job, stuff that you know, is common to all men. We also find that there are then a collection of virtues that are useful in all situations and a collection of, we'll call them vices or common temptations that we should avoid in all situations. So first, let's look at the common situations that are described in Proverbs. I'm going to say that the most important domain that Proverbs speaks to is speech. Both what we say and what we hear, we find that the words that we use are our most important way of interacting with the world. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And we see the sentiment come up again most clearly in James. He speaks of the tongue as being the rudder of a ship or a small fire that starts a great blaze. Proverbs is very clear that our words, being the main way that we interact with the world, have a great deal of power and influence on our lives. And no man can be wise without being wise with his speech. Proverbs also warns us that what we hear can make us wise or foolish, not only what we say. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. So consider this as well, that what you consume also makes you wise or foolish. Your TV shows and podcasts and books and the people that you hang out with, the words that you receive affect your standing. Another large number of the Proverbs are about our relationships. And of course, all of the Proverbs about speech apply to our relationships, too. I mean, in many ways, a relationship is just a, a long series of conversations all strung together and collected. Given that Proverbs is written to a son, the advice we find here is going to be about wives and not husbands, or how to deal with your wife and not your husband. But the significance of the marriage is clear, and the principles, and particularly those related to speech, are universally true. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 31, that uh, extended discourse from Lemuel, is a list of ideal foods with charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord 
is to be praised. After marriage, it is then assumed comes children. Children, we find in Proverbs, need instruction and discipline, but also love and patience, and parents are to provide for them. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This one's genuinely hilarious. Discipline your son, for there is still hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. For you parents who have reached your wit's end, likewise Solomon, the wisest man on earth, considers the death penalty for his disobedient child. But there is hope in wisdom. Children also are directly addressed in many places, being advised to obey their parents, to listen to teaching, and to not think too highly of their immature knowledge. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Beyond one's family, the sphere of influence expands to include being a good neighbor, good friends, and even a good city and community. A man of many companions may come to ruins, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And another funny one. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice early in the morning will be counted as cursing. I like that some of these are, are joking or even sarcastic because it, it reveals to us or reinforces for us that the point of many of these proverbs is to remember them, to think, in this situation, what do I do? I remember. The Bible says. The Proverbs tells me. And so these funny ones, or these clever turns of phrase, they stick in our mind, and they serve as aids to memory. Proverbs is, is very valuable for memorization because it is so accessible and attainable. Anyone can memorize a proverb. Find one that speaks to a temptation common to your life, like speak less, for example, and memorize it. Call it to mind when these situations arise. Pick a funny one if that's what helps you remember it. And then beyond our relationships, God also has a great deal to say about the way we arrange our work. Man was, in fact, made to work. Man was given a job, a labor, prior to sin entering the world. Work is part of God's design for us. And so we see in Proverbs, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who chases worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. There's a strong and clear connection between working and eating in Proverbs. And even though in our kind of modern economy we don't necessarily have a, an immediate I work and then receive food connection like the way that the reader would have here, we understand that, that the principle remains. We, and particularly we men, as this is written from a father to a son, are responsible to provide for ourselves and those in our care. And the means to provide is work. We should not flee from work, but embrace it, as it is just as much a fundamental building block of God's design for creation as is a marriage. So you can see how Proverbs covers all the major and most formative parts of our life our speech, our relationships, our work. These are all the things that people strive for to make a good life. You want good relationships and a, a good job and enough money, and these, these are what we desire to live you know, the good life. But these are also the parts of our life that tend to bring the most stress and temptation. A good marriage is uh, an immense blessing, but strife in the home, Proverbs says, is worse than war outside. So these, these building blocks that God has given us, these sort of common situations that, that all of mankind experiences, no amount of advice can ever cover every situation. We have some, some specific examples in Proverbs that are, are related to a particular event or occurrence, but many of them are just general advice, like talking less or instructing your children. How can a man be wise in every possible situation? There's no way to give instruction for everything that might come up. And so instead, Proverbs wants to instill in us a sense of wisdom, a sense of virtue, a, a character, so that when a man encounters a situation that he has not encountered before, instead of turning to Proverbs and looking to see which one talks about this scenario, he can instead say, my wise character 
instructs me on how to act in a way that is pleasing to God. So let's look at some of the common virtues that we are encouraged to cultivate in the book of Proverbs. First and foremost, we are to love and fear God. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. His children will have a refuge. We are also told over and over again to listen to instruction. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. A wise man is not wise because he knows everything. He is wise because he can learn. We are taught to be fair, to be just. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. We're told to be honest. Truthful lips endure forever. A lying tongue is but for a moment. We are instructed to be generous. One man gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers want. And then likewise, with these virtues, there are also a collection of foolish qualities that we are to avoid. First and foremost, pride. Everyone who is arrogant in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Laziness. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but is too tired to bring it up to his mouth. Exploitation. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Sexual immorality. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. In the introduction to Proverbs, those first nine chapters, the, the instructions to a son, fully half of it is warning about the dangers of adultery. Just as the most common and fundamental building blocks are shown in Proverbs, so is the greatest and most dangerous wrecking ball that a man can bring into his life. The dangers of sexual immorality and adultery are extreme and can destroy any amount of wisdom that a man might have elsewhere in his life. Let's recall that Solomon himself had hundreds of wives and concubines, and at the end of his life, the wisest man on earth, the author of some 3,000 Proverbs, at the end of his life, he was miserable. And we are finally instructed to avoid bad company. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. A common pattern in Proverbs is that these qualities, these virtues, or these vices, this wisdom or this foolishness, they both compound. The wise get wiser, and the foolish get more foolish. Whoever walks with the wise becomes more wise. Whoever receives instruction becomes more wise. Only the wise man is wise enough to listen to what his elders are telling him, and that makes him even more wise. But the foolish man, he hears no rebuke and becomes more foolish. He hangs out with bad friends, and they drag him even further down. He's lazy and gets even further behind. So we find that following this pattern that God has set for us, puts us on a, a path to where God wants us to go. There is a design to creation that is revealed in Proverbs that God has for us. Our speech, our relationships, our marriage, and our children, and our friendships, our community that we live in, and our neighbors, and our work are the key parts of life that God requires of us. And he requires great wisdom to truly live with love and fear for him. Proverbs also fits into the greater narrative of the Bible. If we stopped right here, it could seem a lot like Proverbs is just another book of the law, in fact. We have you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy where a list of laws are laid out for Israel. What's the difference between that law and here in Proverbs? Just more instructions, more to-dos, more here's how to be good. And there are things that we can see in Proverbs both in and of itself, but then also when we take it in the whole context of Scripture, knowing what we know now about the coming of Jesus and God's ultimate plan for redemption. And so I want to 
look at a few of those things that are valuable to keep in mind as you study the Proverbs. First, Proverbs teaches us that God's goodness comes both in a natural form and in a covenant form. So Proverbs is, I think, unique in all of the Old Testament in that there is no reference whatsoever to any covenantal arrangement with mankind. Many of the other um, <clears throat> laws in the Old Testament are explicitly given within the context of a covenant, like the covenant that God made with Israel. And here's instructions for you. God speaks directly to his people. His people speak directly to God. But here in Proverbs, we don't see any particular evidence that God has made a covenant with mankind. And yet, the very same moral teachings are found here as are found in these covenantal laws. Because, of course, God's character and his design for creation is consistent throughout all different times and people. He doesn't have a different set of rules for one people than he has for another about how to please him. Care for your family, your work, and your city are all parts of the instructions given to Abraham or given to Israel or that they are delivered from the prophets. And we even see in Proverbs that this advice works for those who do not believe in God at all. Of course, lacking the fear of the Lord, they cannot be truly wise and they cannot truly live a good life, but even the most God-hating atheist can still work hard to get ahead. So God's goodness comes in a natural form and a covenant form. There are some principles that, even though they might be for Christians, are also valuable for the world. There are some things that Christians do, like, for example, taking the Lord's Supper or attending church on Sundays to regularly gather. There are specific instructions given to the church, but there are many instructions in Scripture, and particularly the ones that we find in Proverbs, that are good for everyone to be faithful, to be honest, to be wise, to be hardworking, are good for everyone. But we do still find that the fear of God is more important than all of these. This is another consistent theme throughout Scripture, that, that sacrifices and obedience to the particulars of the law are, are they're all well and good, but what truly pleases God is righteousness and obedience and a heart after His heart. This idea that the fear of God is more important than these other works that we might do pushes back in two useful directions. At first, it pushes against the cultural ideas of what is good. Maybe it's good to attain as many goods and possessions as possible. Well, the fear of God needs to come before that. Maybe it's good to have a happy home and family life. The fear of God needs to come before that. Maybe it's good to have all of your friends and the important people in your community respect you and confer status to you. But the fear of God is more important than that. These worldly ideas of what it means to live a good life, in the Proverbs, they are shown often to be good, but they must be subservient to the fear of God. But it also pushes in the other direction, the fear of God being more important than these particular laws and instructions reminds us that it is only the fear of God that brings us close to God. We do not impress him with our goodness. The wisest man on earth, Solomon, is rebuked. He is in sin. He's given over to wickedness because the fear of God did not come above his wisdom. His wisdom was not sourced from the fear of God. It was sourced from himself, his own wisdom. And that is insufficient to please the Lord. We also find in Proverbs... As I said, it gives us instructions or an example of how creation is ordered or designed. And yet, we also find in many of the Proverbs and in our own experience and throughout the rest of the Bible that that order is often in disarray. Things actually don't work the way they're supposed to. Sometimes you work hard and it doesn't pay off. Sometimes you keep good company and they still betray you. Sometimes you seek a good wife and your marriage is still tumultuous. It doesn't always work. And sometimes it's the world that is in disarray, and sometimes it's our own hearts. For which of us, reading all the Proverbs, can do all of these things every time? We are disordered. God has created the world with an order, and we are out of order. And the world is out of order. Which brings us to another point, that the law, the instructions, they teach us our shortcomings. Solomon's own life is a perfect example of this. But also, in Proverbs 30, Agur says, 
the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding. I have not learned wisdom. I have not knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in his garment? Who has established the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. This wise man, wise enough to be included in the book of Proverbs, says, I am too stupid to figure this life out. The truly wise man recognizes his lack of wisdom. The truly wise man recognizes that the fear of God is the only source to God's good graces, and yet we all fall short of that fear and love of God. And yet we even see here a hint at something very important that will come long in the future compared to when Proverbs was originally written. Who has established all the ends of the earth? A rhetorical question saying, God, of course, has established the ends of the earth. And to be wise is to know God and be like him. But you haven't been there. You haven't gone to his places. You've seen none of this. You know nothing. What is his name? And what is his son's name? God has a son. And that son, we know, his name is Jesus. In John chapter 1, one of the Gospels, Jesus is first introduced as being the word by which creation was created. It sounds familiar. Jesus is introduced as the one who was there. We see later in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, so we see, wisdom was not enough. We are not wise enough. No one is wise enough to know God. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, Jesus actually was wise, and he actually was good all the way. He did all of the things that a man must do to live a good life and to be wise. He truly accomplished what Proverbs sets out as a possibility that is far beyond us. And yet, the world, in its wisdom, did not see him as such. The world demanded to know, if you're so wise, answer these questions for me. If you're so wise, why aren't you powerful? If you're so wise, debate with me and prove me wrong. But Jesus wasn't here to do any of those things. He was here to be crucified on the cross and become the power and the wisdom of God. Jesus is, in fact, the only source to wisdom. The fear of God must include belief in the Son that God sent to die in spite of being good for our sins. <clears throat> and Jesus also promises while he was here on earth, he not only offers fear of God and wisdom to salvation, but he says that in fact he will set things right. This, this blueprint that's laid out in Proverbs, this, this structure that the world is supposed to have but clearly does not, will one day be fixed. Listen to this, this story about a wealthy young man that comes to Jesus with some important and life-altering questions and listen to how much familiarity there is both in the rich young man and in Jesus' words with the Proverbs. Just then a man came up to Jesus and inquired, Teacher, what good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? That's the question we've been asking this whole time. Jesus replied, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep his commandments. Jesus says, You already know this. The Proverbs say the fear of God is the way to wisdom. The man asked, Which ones? Which, is which commandments? Jesus answers, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Are those not all of the things that we've just seen over and over again in Proverbs? The young man said, All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus told him, If you want to be perfect, then go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. This is where the rubber hits the road for this young man, because the young man says, Look, I know the rules. I'm following the rules. And you can see that they've paid off. I'm, I'm successful. I'm happy. I've followed the commandments. And yet, and yet I sense that I have not actually attained life. There's something missing for the good life. And Jesus says, well, yeah, it's because you're not perfect. You're not perfect. No matter how wise you are, if you want to be perfect, you have to go infinitely further than you've already gone and do infinitely more than you've already done and be ever more wise and ever more generous. There's no end to what's required of you to be perfect. And Jesus says, and then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away in sorrow because he had great wealth. He couldn't give it up. He couldn't give up his wealth, but he also couldn't give up his idea of his own goodness. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, you got to give up being good. You have to give up striving and start following me. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That's such a common figurative speech. With God, all things are possible. And on bumper stickers and people get it tattooed in weird places. And it's just, we, we bust that out when you really want something to happen and it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. You say, hey, with God, all things are possible, right? What is Jesus actually saying? When he says, with God, all things are possible, he is saying that it is actually possible to be good enough to live forever with God. That's the one thing that is really just the perfect example of something that is impossible, is to be perfect. You can't do it. No one can do it. But with God, all things are possible. Look, Peter replied, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Peter says, what about those of us that have followed you? What about those of us who did give up our efforts to be good, to follow Jesus, who is wisdom itself? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for the sake of my name will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last. The last will be first. All of these things that we see in Proverbs, your relationships, your family, your children, your work, your possessions, your friends and your community, and all of your wisdom and all of your goodness, Jesus says, sell all your possessions and follow me. And he also says, for those who give up those things, for those who give up their goodness, he offers an inheritance of eternal life. Those who are willing to give up they're striving for goodness and instead repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. Receive, instead of goodness, they receive perfection and eternal life. So friends, as you work through Proverbs, recognize God has a design for the world. There is a way that things ought to be. And when you fear the Lord and when you live your life in cooperation with His design, He promises to bless you. Pray for wisdom. Pray for these things to be true of your life. Memorize the Proverbs. Live by them. But do not ever try to live by the Proverbs as a means to life. The means to life is faith in Jesus. Everyone who has left 
houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, fields, all of those things in Proverbs that we are told to care for and tend to. Everyone who has left those things for the sake of the name of Jesus will receive back a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for giving us instruction. Make us humble to receive it. Let us appreciate your discipline, even though it may be hard, knowing that you're making us more wise and more like Jesus, who is wisdom itself. Father, thank you that the only way to you is not by being wise enough. Thank you that you knew our weakness. Thank you that you knew that we are disordered. Thank you that you know that we cannot be wise. We're all fools. And the wisdom of this world can never save. So thank you then for sending Jesus to die in our place for our sins and show us the way to true wisdom and eternal life. Father, may we seek after these things. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. No.